0: Well, if you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hand, and we want to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. Titus 2, 11 through 14. The women, if you haven't picked up on it yet, is going through the book of Titus. And so that is the memory verse for you women. So instead of asking for you guys to come up here and recite it, we figured we'd have Caitlin just sing it to you, and she did an amazing, amazing job. So I absolutely love that. Well, last week... Pastor Grady preached about the gospel. This week, I get to preach about the gospel. And guess what? Next week, Pastor Cody will preach about the gospel. Not planned, but I think needed. I think the legend goes with Martin Luther, uh, some of his congregants told him, which is, by the way, Reformation Sunday, but Martin Luther, uh, his congregants came up to him and said, why do you preach the gospel to us every week? And he said, because you forget it every single week. That's the case with us as well. Amen? Well, Titus 2 11 through 14. Hopefully, you've gotten there already. The Apostle Paul is writing, go figure, to Titus, who was a close companion of Paul's and has been left on the island of Crete to put things in order in the existing churches. On that island. His job, his mission, was to appoint qualified leaders and teach sound doctrine to the church. Aren't you thankful that we have a senior pastor who does that week in and week out to us? Titus is called to teach that which is biblical and healthy for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. He is not to teach myths. He is not to teach human philosophies or legalism or his opinions. He is to teach God's revelation given to his people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is what I hope to do this morning in this passage. And right in the middle of his instruction to Titus, Paul lays out the beauty, the purpose, and the hope of the doctrine of salvation. Right smack dab in the middle of this book. It is a glorious passage that not only points to the amazing grace of God to save us, hear me on this, but what the effect that grace should be in our life. The effect that grace should be on our life. And as is typical Paul's writing, This is one long sentence in the original Greek. And over the next three and a half hours, I hope to unpack it. (laughs) I'll wake you up when we're done. Let me read through it and give some commentary as I do so. For the grace of God. What an incredible place to start. The grace of God. The undeserved and unearned goodness and loving kindness of God. God, which is exactly what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 4, how he defines the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, which is completely unheard of, not just for the Jews, no, for the Gentiles too. Training, disciplining, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, today. That's what we're called to do. Saved by grace means being radically changed by grace and live like it today in this present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. We have two appearances in this passage. One that we look back to, Coming first coming of Jesus Christ, And one that we look forward to. Verse 13, continuing on, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify. To purify us. Listen, grace without repentance isn't grace. Grace without repentance is not grace for himself, purify him for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, zealous, eagerly striving for good works. An incredible, incredible passage before us this morning. And reading that should cause us to stand amazed at God's saving grace. To stand amazed at God's saving grace. Grace. Look at verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The gospel of the Bible is quite extraordinary. Let me remind you how extraordinary it is. God does the unthinkable and comes to us. He comes to us. I think we hear that so often, we say it so often. We recite John 3.16, we understand that, but we don't quite understand the magnitude of that reality. He doesn't demand that we work our way back to him as if that was even possible, which is, it's not. No, he appears and brings salvation to us. So if you haven't picked up on it yet, grace is not just a thing, as we typically only think about it as, grace is a person. Grace is a person. It is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. God's eternal grace is personified in the eternal person and work of Jesus Christ as fully man and fully God. Remarkable. 2,000 years ago, at the appointed time, at the perfect time that God ordained and predetermined before the foundations of the earth. At the appointed time, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, stepped down from glory and entered the world that he created. The grace of God appearing in the person of Jesus Christ, who made salvation available to all by living sinlessly, dying obediently, and defeating death permanently. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he did for us. That's what he did in his appearing in this world that he created. My question to you, are you amazed that you are saved by grace through faith, if you are this morning? Are you amazed? Are you overwhelmed that you, of all people, Are saved. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever just stopped to consider the salvation that has been brought to you and your life in Jesus Christ? You of all people. And let me include myself in that. As you're probably thinking, well, bro, you of all people. Yes, absolutely. Why you? Why me? because there's something so special about me that God just had to have me for all eternity? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are not saved based on our value to be saved. Hear me on. Hear me this morning on this. We are not saved based on our value to be saved. We are saved because of the unbelievable grace of God our savior. God's grace chose us, not based on us, but based on his prerogative and pursuit to do so. That's that's what what he did. That's what he did for you. God chose us based on his prerogative and pursuit to do so. And we added nothing, we added nothing to that but our sin. That's what we get to contribute to this whole thing of salvation. Salvation. We contribute our sin. And I would say, probably an ironclad case against us not to be chosen. That's the reality. And to add insult to injury, our life as a sinner and apart from God is a life spent running from God, hiding from God. Did we not, do we not see that from the first example of our parents back in the garden? Hiding, running, being ashamed, avoiding God. Augustine, one of the great church fathers who lived between the 3rd and 4th century, and by the way, that's not a statue of Pastor Grady. I know it kind of looks like it. We have not commissioned a statue to be placed in our lobby of Pastor Grady. That's Augustine, a great church father from the 3rd and 4th century A.D., called God... The Hound of Heaven. It's an interesting title for God. The Hound of Heaven. If anybody can get away with calling God a dog, I think it's Augustine. But this is the reason he called him the Hound of Heaven. He said, God relentlessly tracked him down and overtook him with divine grace. That's his testimony of what God has did in his life. Like a bloodhound on the scent, God didn't give up until Augustine was overcome with the loving kindness and goodness of his grace. Is that not how you were saved? You weren't beat down by God's fist. You were overcome by his grace Augustine wrote in his autobiography, speaking of God and reflecting on his own conversion, he said this, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, until they find their peace, our our peace in you. We're completely restless until we find it completely and perfectly in your grace. Listen, God's grace doesn't just appear. His grace demonstrated in Jesus methodically, relentlessly, and lovingly comes after us. And as we grow weary of looking for rest in a world that can't offer it, the grace of God, again, didn't beat us down, and we had to believe. No, we were pursued, embraced by grace, and we wanted to believe. Amen, is that not your story I, I don't it doesn't matter what age you came to know him as your Lord and Savior. That is what wins us over. That's the work that he does. We were pursued, embraced by grace and wanted to believe we wanted to love the one who loved us so perfectly, so perfectly, which means When our life comes to an end, nothing else matters than what we did or didn't do with Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. Your greatest need in all of the universe is Jesus Christ. If he isn't your Lord today and you step into eternity, you will literally be lost forever. So if you have never received his grace, if you have never received his grace, Ask him today to save you, right here, right now. There hasn't doesn't have to be come to the altar kind of moment and invitation. Just, just ask Jesus to save you today. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, and you will be saved. His grace is here. Let his grace embrace you, then stand amazed and rest assured that God has saved you. Look again at verse 14 as Paul expounds on the work of Jesus. Verse 14, who gave himself, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have been redeemed and made clean to be his possession for good works. Paraphrasing that, putting it in my words. Paul uses Old Testament language to portray Christ's salvation as the fulfillment of God's work of choosing for himself a people. If you know your Bible and you've spent any time in the Old Testament, that's Old Testament language. That he's connecting the dots for us. To say, man, this is, this is Christ's salvation is the fulfillment of God's work of choosing for himself a people. Us, a people who are redeemed with his blood, he bought us back from our very own wickedness. That's what the idea of being redeemed means, being bought back by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are bought back, nothing more precious than the blood of Jesus Christ redeeming us from our wickedness. A people who are purified. We are quite literally enabled to obey the truth. That's the idea of being purified. We are able to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. A people who are not our own. A people for his own possession. We now belong to God. You are not your own if you are his. We are owned with a perfect love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, just in case you didn't hear me the first time. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And we are a people who eagerly want to do good. You know we're not saved by good works. There are not enough good works. Our righteousness is as a filthy rags. We're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. We've got to make sure we have that in the proper order. We are saved to get to work, not sit and be comfortable, to spend and be spent for Jesus Christ, to work and to be tired in the name of Jesus. We are saved to eagerly want to glorify God by what we do works of righteousness that build up and edify the church, good works that show the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the world around us, good works that bring life, that bring light, and bring salt into our homes and the pagan culture around us. That's what we get to do now. That's what we're called to do now. Because the grace of God has appeared and saved us. That's what we get to do. Paul goes on to explain what else God's grace is doing currently within the church, hopefully within us individually. Look at verse 12 again. Training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, Godly lives in the present age. So secondly, I think God's grace trains us to submit to God's sanctifying work. Submit to God's sanctifying work. To ignore the present impact of the gospel of grace is to fail to grasp the full purpose of the gospel. The grace of God is not done working in our lives. It didn't just appear, Jesus didn't just appear to save us and then leave us alone. The grace of God is still absolutely needed in our life. I am a firm believer that our will is either submissive to our sinful nature or the spirit of Christ within us. Those are really the only two options. We're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Neutral is never a thing, spiritually speaking, as we walk this walk with Jesus. It's never a thing. Just put it in neutral and we're not getting worse, we're not getting better. We're just no, that there's, It doesn't exist. It's not biblical. Which means, just to reiterate, the gospel is not just for lost people. It wasn't just for you when you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The gospel is for saved people as well. The gospel is for the church today in every way possible. The gospel is just as relevant for us as believers today as it was the day we first believed. I hope you understand that. God's grace is saving grace for sure, but it is also sanctifying grace. And Paul makes it clear that our Christianity should be consistently marked with actions, attitudes, and desires, which are fundamentally different than the world we are saved out of. Radically different than the world we're saved out of. Like, can someone claim the name of Jesus and then continue to look, think, talk, and act like the world? Not according to this very passage. I would say absolutely not. And not according to what Paul says in Romans. Look at what he says in Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The whole argument is, man, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so, so Paul's like, hey, should we just... Keep sinning so that there's more grace? What do you say? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's unheard of in the doctrine and theology of Paul who wrote the Bible. Like how can we who died to sin still live in it? And look what he says in verse, or chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but what? Under grace. Like like the result of being under grace, the result of being saved by grace, the the result of knowing God's grace, the the idea of, of absolutely being overwhelmed by grace means that there's a level of repentance and turning from sin that should be pretty consistent in our life. It's grace without the need to turn from sin isn't biblical grace. Because of grace, we are to be sanctified and sanctified and sanctified. That means we are to progressively sin less and be like Christ more, who, by the way, was sinless. We will never be sinless. There's no such thing as perfection this side of heaven. That will happen when we step into his presence and we understand for the first time ever, what our life is like without sin. I cannot wait for that, nor can my wife. We are to be sanctified, progressively sinning less and be like Christ more. We are justified, but still sinners. We are declared righteous, but we're still sinners. And only with God's grace, only with the spirit of Christ within us can we be a set-apart and holy people. That's our only hope. And the first step is to humbly submit to the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Submission, just for the record, is not just for wives. Isn't the only time we talk about submission? Wives, submit to your husbands, and then it becomes a bad word or whatever. No, no, submission is the heart of the gospel. Literally, it's the heart of the gospel. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then submission is the only response that makes sense for every single believer. So men, by the way, before you expect it from your wife, let me challenge you. Submit to Jesus Christ. Boy, you guys got quiet on that one. Submit. We submit, the Holy Spirit changes. We surrender, he transforms. He makes us holy. If I'm honest, I feel like for most Christians, holiness sounds like sackcloth and ashes, scraping boils from your skin and crying out in anguish. I feel like that's how we talk about holiness so many times. Holiness is a good thing. It's a really good thing that we should get really excited about because it's removing... The presence of sin from our life. I think that's a really good thing. That's a very good thing. We have been set free from the power and penalty of sin, but it's still present in our life. And we need to become holy. We need to renounce the sin. We need to repent of the sin. We need to get it out of our life. Holiness is walking in freedom. It's living how God died for us to live. It's joy. It's peace. It's abundant life. I've never heard anybody say those things who are in, that might be dealing with the bondage of sin and enjoying being overwhelmed by sin. I've never heard that. I've only experienced that in the context of walking as God has called me to walk. Joy, peace, abundant life. It's allowing others even to experience the goodness of God in our life. That's holiness. It's a beautiful thing that we should be very excited about and desire in our life. It's a beautiful gift of grace and one that the church needs to celebrate and embrace. Looking back at verse 12, we begin to see more so our role in sanctification. God's grace trains us to say no, to renounce that which is contrary to conduct of a believer, to the conduct of a believer. Verse 12 again, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control upright and godly lives in this present age. The verb renounce that Paul uses here is quite literally the idea of training up a child. Just so you know, just to help you be reminded, especially you parents, it's the job of the parent to train up a child in what is right and wrong. That's our responsibility. Amen? Could have been stronger on that one. Not the schools, not even the church. It's the parents' first and foremost responsibility to train up a child in what is right and wrong. We are to make disciples within our home. The parent is to exert their authority onto the child for the purpose of discipline. And it usually starts with what word? No. Two-letter word. Of no. That word no is training the child to understand that he belongs to a kingdom that is under the lordship of another. The lordship of the parents. The child is being taught that he is not, he or she is not his own king. The child doesn't get to be a sovereign nation. He's a subject of the Lord of the home. Listen, so it is with us believers. So it is with us believers. The king of heaven now sits on the throne of our lives. If you are his, that's the reality. The king of heaven now sits on the throne of our lives, and that gives him ultimate authority over our lives. We are not to build our own little kingdom. We are kingdom of heaven citizens who are to surrender and submit to the king of kings. We must co-op with him to be sanctified. And God provides the grace to do just that. Our heavenly father trains his children with grace in order to be sanctified. It's amazing. Grace gives us the ability to say no to a life without God's influence. That's the idea of ungodliness in that verse. It is to live a life, ungodliness is, is to live a life without regard for God and his way. By grace, we have the ability to say no to ungodliness in all areas. And maybe you're sitting here this morning going, listen, I think God influences my life. I certainly don't disregard him in the context of my life. Listen, that may be true but every single one of us have an area in our life that God's influence is not having his way in. Guarantee. Remember what I said, perfection is not a thing? There's some area in our life that God does not have. By his grace, we have the ability to say no to what we want. And as we'll see here in a second, to say yes to what God wants. By grace, say no to ungodliness in all areas. Secondly, say no to what the world loves, worldly passions, which is just simply an overwhelming desire for the things and pleasures of the world around us. And aren't there many? Unlimited amount of pleasures and desires around us. The fallen world, in the fallen world that stands in opposition to God's kingdom, God's grace gives us the ability to say no to those things. But grace, again, also provides the ability for us to say yes to the things of the Lord, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to self-control, to self-control. A major theme in this book. You women who've been studying this book know this. Self-control, a theme for Paul in this letter, restraining yourself from doing what you want to do, and instead submitting, there's that word again, submitting to the Holy Spirit in our life. Which, by the way, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, so it should be displayed, exemplified in our life, being produced in our life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uprightness. Say yes to being upright, which is just simply treating others as you want to be treated. It's the idea of living and acting justly or honestly with everyone you come in contact with, saying yes to godliness. If ungodliness is the absence of God, then godliness is all about God's glory, again, in every aspect of your life. It's literally praying the prayer and literally crying out to the Lord over and over, have it all, Lord. It's yours anyway. Only by submitting to his grace are we sanctified in that way today. But we are not sufficient in and of ourselves of these things. And then lastly, this morning, grace provides us hope in God's coming glory. Grace provides us hope in God's coming glory. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the coming of God's grace the first time. The second time, he will be the epiphany of God's glory. By the way, this verse is a clear reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. I, I really think the best way to understand this verse is with referring to one Person. I think it's easy to read this and think it was God the Father and then our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the way I worded it and why I worded the point the way that I did. Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus will appear again suddenly, personally, visibly, and bodily. The first time in grace, the second time in full glory. The second coming will be about completing what we started, what he started in the believer, Our being saved and purified will culminate with us being glorified and perfected. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Jesus Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3.2. Church, that is our blessed hope. That is our blessed hope. Nothing else is. Our hope is in that. But I think many times we fail to remember that his return should be our greatest hope. Instead, we place our ultimate hope in people or governments or retirement or anything else but seeing Jesus face to face. By the way, if your attitude is, you know, whatever, his return in my lifetime is slim to none, okay? I get that. But the chance of you dying and going before him is 100%. I think the current stats are 10 out of 10 people die. 100 out of 100 people die. Our hope for Jesus, Jesus' return, can easily be diluted and misplaced. And I think there's four reasons That tends to happen in our life. So in closing this morning, let me give you four quick things. Four reasons that we may not hope in God's coming glory. Number one, we love the world more. Just plain and simple, we love the world more. The world has our heart and our mind, and we are satisfied and comfortable with it. Number two, we love Jesus half-heartedly. We love Jesus half-heartedly. Our love for Jesus is just too small, which means that we just don't know him the way that we should. We're not spending the time that we should getting to know him because to know him is to love him wholeheartedly. And we need to continue to know him and see him and fall more and more in love with him. Number three we view church as optional. We view church as optional. As in no big deal, I think the idea misses the eternal fact that the church is the bride of Christ and will be with him forever. Forever. This, this is a foretaste of what is to come. I could have walked up here After that worship set and the time just worshiping with you and then hearing scripture being sung and prayed and we could have gone home. It was that good. But this is a foretaste of what is to come. American pastor and prolific author from the early 1900s, A.W. Tozer, said this. Let me just read it to you. I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship, is not ready for heaven. Stepped on my own toes before anybody else's. Listen, our love for each other, fellowship with each other, our corporate worship together is just a sliver of what is to come. Number four, along those same lines, we understand heaven unbiblically. We just flat out understand heaven unbiblically. I love that I, the fact that Pastor Rob walked us through the understanding, <clears throat> excuse me, of what heaven is really going to be like. We understand heaven unbiblically. In other words, as in heaven is boring. Heaven is boring. Harps and angels, right, clouds and puppy dogs. Man, that's not heaven. Okay, maybe puppy dogs. Not cats but certainly puppy dogs. <laughs> certainly puppy dogs. Listen, that's, that's not heaven. How can heaven be boring? And how, how, how can be heaven boring when we see Jesus Christ? To know him is, want, is to want to be with him. That's why Paul says, to die is gain. To live is Christ." and to die is gain. I get to see Jesus, I get to have him. That's gonna be incredible. How on earth can we ever think that heaven's gonna be boring? Our life will be all worship. We will spend eternity lifting high the name of Jesus with every fiber of our eternal being. If grace is the bedrock of our faith, then the glorious return of Jesus is the hope we look for in the future. But it's all rooted in grace. When we see him, our faith will be sight. The renouncing of sin will cease. The need, literally the need to say no will end. Praise Jesus for that. Everything we didn't want to do and hated will be no more. Everything we wanted to become will be. Our life today is that incredible place of waiting in the in-between time of Jesus' first appearance and his return, looking back, both back and looking forward, the cross and his return. May we wait well, amen? May we wait, wait uh, saved, sanctified, and hoping with eager anticipation for who is to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Where would we we be without it? For most of us, we understand what our life would be like without your grace because we've lived it. And we never, ever want to go back. We never want to experience one second of our life without your grace. So thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. I don't understand it, I don't get it, but I'm glad I have it. And I'm so thankful that we have it every day and that through your grace, we can become more like Jesus Christ and we can sin less in order to glorify you more. So implant those truths deep within us this morning, Lord. And I just have to pray again and have to say again, Lord, if there is if there's anyone here this morning who have who's never experienced your grace personally. May they do it right now. May they just bow their heart before you and let you embrace them with your grace. We pray this in your name.